just give you an overview of what the main things are, and then we will try to go through it. Uh, if you have your Bibles, which I hope that you do, I don't have my hearing aid in, so I can't hear anything on this side. So if it's bad, you'll have to take it up Lucas. So, but he can fix it. Uh, the book of Revelation, if you would, find Revelation chapter 1, and then when she gets back with those study notes, we'll get those to you. Uh, the whole purpose of the book of Revelation is summed up in chapter 1, verse 19. Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. And uh, the Apostle John writes these words, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are... And the things which will take place after this. And so we see past, present, and future. Most of the book of Revelation is the future. Things that are going to happen in the coming days, months, years, depending on the Lord's timetable. Uh, but what we do know is chapter 1 would have been the past. It would have been what John had experienced. Chapters 2 and 3 would have been about the churches of Revelation, the present, and chapters 4 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation are the future. The author is the Apostle John, wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, there is some discussion about when the book was written, but it had to be sometime between 70 A.D. and 95 A.D. And what I can tell you is this, there is no two people on the entire planet that agree on everything in the book of Revelation. And so as we go through that, you might disagree, you might not quite think that, and that is okay. And uh, I do not have all the answers, but what we will try to do is look at everything through the scriptures. And so a good verse to really meditate on as you study the book of Revelation with us comes from Isaiah, the 46th chapter. Isaiah 46, chapter 9, verses 9 through 10. The writer Isaiah writes, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from the ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So when you read the book of Revelation, when you have fear and anxiety about what is going to happen, you can remember this simple truth that God knows, that God is in control, and that God is going to do what is right. And so as we study through this, always remember that simple thing. But there are seven major things I want to call your attention to tonight in the book of Revelation. And we might not get through but one or two of them. But if you don't get the overview, you will constantly be struggling. For instance, as you're reading chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, and you're thinking, how is this transpiring? Or is it going on all at the same time? Or when the book chapter 19 describes the battle that's mentioned in chapter 16. And so seven major things that are to come. And like I said, these are all in the notes as soon as they get back here. But the next major thing in the book of Revelation comes to us as we get through chapters 2 and 3. And that is the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. 
I personally hold to a pre-tribulation rapture. That is, the Lord will take His church home, and then the seven years of the tribulation period begin. There are three views about the rapture, and I want to just call your attention to those very, very quickly. There are pre-trib people who believe, like I do, that the Lord will take His church home. There are some who are mid-tribbers, that somewhere in that seven-year period, the Lord is going to take them home. There are post-tribbers who believe that at the end of the seven-year period, that will be the Lord taking them home. And uh, you can find biblical evidence for all of them. I think, in my personal opinion, the strongest case is for the first one. But we can disagree and still go to heaven. But in the book of uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, uh, the Apostle John hears these words from the Lord. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet, speaking to me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. The future is being presented. And so when we think about the next event on God's timetable, it is the rapture of the church. <laughs> Write down these verses if you don't have your notes or you can wait till uh, they're coming around now, right now. So as you see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 16, the Bible says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so what we see is there are two ways of looking at this. Some people feel that this happens after the tribulation. But what we see are two times the Lord comes back. One to get his people and one to destroy his enemies. And so, if you were to flip to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So we believe the rapture will be quick. It will be when we least expect it. The Bible says that no one knows the day or the hour. You can find that these are verses just to write down in your own notes for your own study. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 54, the Bible talks about that God will resurrect all believers who have died, giving them glorified bodies and taking them from earth along with all living believers who will also be given glorified bodies. If you were to flip over to 1 John chapter 3, and you don't have time tonight to do all of those, but you can write that down. The Bible tells us that we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And so the rapture will involve an instantaneous transformation of this body into a body that will last forever. Like I said, I believe the rapture is different than the day of the Lord when He comes back to destroy His enemies, because the rapture is described as us coming to Him, the Bible says it calls us into the clouds to meet in the air. 
When we look in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 3 through 4, that's a lot of scripture. If you want to know what you believe, you better base it on scripture and not some overweight guy who's out of breath. At the second coming, the Lord descends all the way to the earth to stand on the Mount of Olives, resulting in a great earthquake followed by the defeat of God's enemies. So two different occasions according to the word of God. Hey, Jay. Yes, sir. What was Zechariah again, please? Zechariah chapter 14, verses 3 through 4. Did anyone not get the study notes? Actually, actually you can repeat the other two. Yeah. All right, all right. Yes, those are not in your notes, those extra ones, but I can do it. Always starting out well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is talking about the rapture of the church, verses 50 through 54. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. My notes are like 37 pages, and you got five. So, that's why. And Zechariah chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, talks about the second coming of the Lord to destroy His enemies. But, why was the early church, especially those who had come from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, struggle with this idea of a rapture? Because it is very scarcely, if not at all, found in the Old Testament. Because that's why Paul calls it a mystery. It has now been explained. It has now been revealed. We know that 1 Corinthians 15 tells us Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. And so one of the most encouraging verses in all the Bible comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18. When we talk about the fact that the dead in Christ will rise, Paul tells us to encourage each other with these words. That's why we don't face death like anyone else. That's why we don't deal with loss like anyone else. Because we have hope of the resurrection. We have the hope that the Lord is going to take us with Him. Uh, some great articles, if you were to look at them on where you think your views of the tribulation took fall, is a website called gotquestions.org. Literally, there are 78,000 Christian questions that you could just type in a couple keywords, and it will give you some wonderful articles on different perspectives, different points of view, and that you can study and make up your own decision. So the rapture of the church. We're going to be very brief, but any questions on the rapture? Awesome. Because we're going to go through all of this in depth for years probably. So the next thing that we will know after the rapture is the rise of the beast and the Antichrist. If you have your notes there, that comes to us from Revelation Chapter 13. So the church is now in heaven with the Lord. The tribulation period begins. And in Revelation chapter 13, starting in verse 1, the Bible says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads 
and ten horns. And on his ten horns, ten crowns. And on his head, a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him power, his throne, and his great authority. The dragon being Satan, the beast being the Antichrist. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. What we see is at some point the Antichrist is going to publicly most likely die. But yet, through the power of Satan, he is going to be brought back to life. And the world is going to celebrate that. Now, we do not know if he actually dies, if he appears to die, because this says wounded. And there's some difficulty on mortally wounded and can Satan bring people back. But anyway, the world will think that this man has conquered death. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, the Jewish people are looking for a Messiah to conquer death. And we believe Jesus fulfilled that. But the Jewish people have not. And so what you need to know is the tribulation period is truly focused on Israel. Focused on God redeeming a people. The Jewish people. Now some people don't believe that. Some people believe that God is done with the Jewish people. He has no use for the Jewish people. That all the promises of God are fulfilled in the church. I am not one of those people. I believe that God still has a purpose and a plan for the Jewish people. You can disagree with me. That's fine. You can go to heaven just like I can. But we're going to look at that at some point. But what we see here is, who is this beast of the book of Revelation? If you'd like to write these notes down, you can. There are too many scriptures to find. Daniel chapter 7, pretty much all of it, will talk to you about the leopard, talk to you about the beast. The beast reverse sometimes in the book of Revelation to the empire, evil empires. Sometimes it refers to the individual, this political and military leader who the world will worship. Now we need to remember there that while the Antichrist gets most of, of the attention, there is another evil ruler, the evil prophet, who is going to come and be a religious leader. A person who is going to call the world to worship the Antichrist. And uh, there's a lot of disagreements, but I believe when you study it, these are two men who are demon-possessed. Who have power from Satan to influence and to impact the world. Now, some people feel that they are just demons, but I strongly feel differently. But yet there is ample support, I think, for you to come up to your own opinion. But what we see is in this time period that the beast will receive a deadly wound and be healed of it. Revelation 13. He will exert authority over the whole world and demand worship. Chapter 13, verses 7 and 8. He will wage war against God's people. Now the church is gone. So he is waging war against the Jewish people and those who are saved during the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 13, Daniel chapter 7. However, even though it seems that he will be victorious, his time is short. And we know that him and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire 
which is the second death. And so there are a few things that you should know about this. At some point, there is going to be a rebuilt temple, the Jewish temple that the Jewish people will worship at. You say, Jake, how is that possible? The dome of the rock sits there. All I can tell you is what the Bible says. Whether it's a right-wing Israeli government, whether it's a terrorist attack, we do not know. But the temple is going to be rebuilt. And what it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, is that the Antichrist will set himself in God's temple and demand to be worshipped. The Bible calls him a man of lawlessness. The Bible calls him a man doomed to destruction. And if you want to check back to the book of Daniel, it talks about him having horns that rises from the head of the terrifying beast. But some words of encouragement in Revelation 19. When the Lord returns in his judgment on this world, he will defeat the beast and destroy his empire. Revelation 19, Daniel chapter 7. The beast will be cast into the lake of fire. And the identity of the individual who will become the beast of Revelation is not yet known. Now, you'll hear a lot of people say a whole lot of people could be him. But we do not know and will not know until the Holy Spirit is done restraining the evil of this world. When the Holy Spirit eventually says that all of this is going to transpire, then you and I, who hopefully will be in heaven if you know the Lord tonight, will know this. And so I just want you to see that this is going to have to happen. Satan is going to raise up his two. Uh, some scholars call them the, the unholy trinity. Satan, the prophet, and the antichrist. Like we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The prophet, just a few verses about that. If it matters to you, apparently it does since you're here tonight. You can read about that in Revelations 13, 16, 19, and 20. He is depicted of having horns like a lamb while speaking like a dragon. The horns on lambs are merely small bumps on their head until a lamb grows into a ram. Rather than having the Antichrist multiple heads and horns showing that he has power and might and fearness, the false prophet comes like a lamb, winsome with persuasive words that gives us a heart of sympathy and goodwill. And so the Antichrist sets up his kingdom through military, through power, through finances. And the prophet sets his up through false religion. Now, this is why, I'm not saying I believe this, all right? But this is why for so long people felt that this referred to the Catholic Church. Because the Bible talks about an empire that has once fallen being restored. An empire that almost stumbled but has continued. And so Rome was the heart of the Roman Empire. And because of that, now that the Catholic Church is not a military power but a religious power, many people thought that that would filter through the Pope. We do not know. All right. And really all that's going to get you is a whole bunch of angry people at you. All right. And so what we don't know is, though, it will be religious. Maybe it'll be a religion of Islam. We don't know. 
Maybe it will be a religion that runs through a, a Catholic church or a seven-day Advents or, or Jehovah with We don't know. But it will be religious in nature and it will be pointing people to this man that he is to be worshipped, that he is the bringer of world peace, that he is the one who will solve the world's problems. But I want you to see something very quick is that this is where the people that are saved during the tribulation period will have to make a choice to either worship the Antichrist or die, to take the mark of the beast or not. And so it's really important there in Revelation 13, verse 16, the false prophet will be the one giving people to believe and take the mark of the beast. Now, the mark of the beast is a discussion we will definitely talk about when we get there. But since we only have like 25 minutes, that will not be tonight. But I will say this. And I think I, this is a wonderful statement that I read. The problem with the mark of the beast is not just an economic or technology issue. Well, you won't have credit cards or you won't have this. But it truly is a spiritual issue. It is a universal sign of disbelief in Jesus and trust in the Antichrist. It's not just going to be a number. It is going to be a decision you have to make to reject Jesus and follow the Antichrist. And by doing that, then you will receive that. It's not where they'll just come in and stamp every person sitting in here. It is when you make that decision to follow Satan and his emissary. All right? Questions? Comments? That whole mark as a going backwards to the Pharisees with the phylacteries. Is that they, they wore that on the on the forehead and they also had that on the arm? So the rapture of the church, you and I, if you were saved, are in heaven. Alright? So we're glad for that. The rise of the beast, the Antichrist, is risen up. And the seven-year period, the Bible calls, um, uh, and Daniel talks about it, um, and what it says in Revelation 6, chapter 12. And I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth, and the figs dropped its late figs, when it was shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sigh receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks and the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. From wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So you see a picture of what it is going to be like at some point during this seven year people, uh, seven year period. Just a couple things about the tribulation period that I think are extremely important. No matter what you believe, it is a seven year period when the wrath of God is poured out upon the world. I believe, due to verses like the book of Romans that says that we will not face the wrath of God, that we will not be here. 
But the church, as we have talked about, will be gone, saved from the wrath to come. Uh, you can read this in Isaiah chapter 2 about the day of the Lord coming. Uh, chapter 13 of Isaiah, Joel chapter 1, 2, and 3. And we can see in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus talks about it. Daniel chapter 12, or in the book of Jeremiah chapter 30, the time of Jacob's trouble. But why I think that this is the Jewish people and why God is dealing with the Jewish people comes from the book of Daniel chapter 9. When God is speaking to Daniel, he is speaking to him about his people. And his people are the Jewish people. Uh, if you were here for our study on um, the nativity and we looked at how the wise men and how uh, Daniel would have been sent there and uh, most likely was the reason there were wise men that believed the Jewish scriptures. But in verses 9 through 24, the passage speaks of 70 weeks that have been declared against your people. Daniel's people are the Jews, the nation of Israel. Daniel 9 verse 24 speaks of a period of time that God has given to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. And so God is dealing again with correcting the Jewish people by also correcting them, but fulfilling the promises that he made to them. And uh, we look in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Jesus talks about uh, the one who will have the abomination that causes desolation. We've looked at Revelation 13 that it will be the beast. And so this three and a half year period, 42 months, we see that for the first three and a half years, um, the Antichrist is setting himself up. He's building this coalition. He is bringing peace and prosperity. But at the midway point is when everything changes. And so for the first three and a half years, you have Israel believing they have been brought back to the promises that God has given them. But the second three and a half year period is when everything truly is focused in on them, on destroying them, on wiping them off the face of the earth. Honestly, I personally believe that over the tribulation period, the Bible talks about the 144,000 evangelists. And I believe as those 144,000 Jewish people that are saved, truly born again, begin to share the gospel, begin to see people saved, that the Antichrist will truly focus in on them. Because most people don't care about your faith until you try to share it, until you try to spread it. And so that second three and a half year period becomes the great persecution that we will look at. And uh, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you can flip over there uh, with me in chapter 6. We begin to see the seals are unrolled. They are broken. And so you begin to see like conquering. You begin to see there's conflict on the earth. There becomes scarcity. The horse riders here. You see the widespread death. You see the cry of the martyrs. You see cosmic disturbances. But that's not it. In chapter 8, you see over into the trumpet judgments. And these are all judgment that God's is going to be pouring out. And what happens is we get so focused in on these sometimes that we forget these are going on in this period of time. 
God is pouring out these judgments one after another. We don't know if it's once a month, once every two months, but yet we see this. The first trumpet there in chapter 8, vegetation is struck. So we're now seeing food shortages. We're seeing plagues. Uh, we see that the seas are struck. And a third of the sea became like blood. And a third of living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. You think there's a shipping crisis now? And a supply chain issue now? Imagine if a third of all the ships in the sea were gone. You see shortages. We see that the waters were struck. And someone said, I don't get the difference between the sea and the water. There are saltwater oceans and there are fresh water, right? So the Mississippi, imagine if a river like that was gone and the impact it would have on the country. We see the fourth trumpet there in chapter 8 that a third of the moons and the stars and, and all of the heavenly things were divinely shut down. And so imagine the widespread panic. In chapter 9, we see the locusts from the bottomless pit that are going to come upon the earth. The Euphrates River, which is a river that you can today still see, is going to dry up. And so God is pouring out these judgments. But I don't want you to miss something very quickly. When you read chapter 6, you see these six terrible seals that are going to bring judgment. And then right in the middle of it, there's chapter 7. And well, where's the seventh seal? God gives us a word of encouragement and hope. He talks about the fact that there are people who were sealed, who God has not forgotten His people, even though the entire world is crumbling down around them. The second part of chapter 7, it says this in verse 9, And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, people, and tongue, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with ripe robe, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne to the Lamb. So right here in the middle of all of this, destruction and death and, and pain, God says, wait! Stop! I want you to remind though, I haven't forgot you. I haven't forgot my people. I haven't abandoned you. And I think that's just a wonderful word of encouragement. Because if you go over, once again in chapter 9, we get to the sixth trumpet out of the seven, and I'm like, where's the seventh trumpet? Stops there in verse 10. And what happens? We once again see the fact that God gives His people encouragement. This little book it talks about here. And, and uh, it's just and once again it stops. But then even in verse 11 it talks about the two witnesses who are going to be declaring the things of God. But even in the midst of how bad the book of Revelation is for the world and for the lost, that God is not done working. That He is still showing mercy. That there are still hope for people as bad as it is. Because there at the end of verse 11, it said, chapter 11, it says, The seventh trumpet, as your Bible might say, the kingdom proclaimed. And so we see here the glory of God is revealed and it's talking about uh, all the goodness of God and, and how angry the people were. And then in verse 12, it goes back into describing what's going on. 
So be reminded of that as you're reading through the book of Revelation. That sometimes God just takes a pause and says, remember, I'm on the throne. Remember, I am at work. And uh, as the tribulation period unfolds, we see in chapters 12 and 13 uh, some, a different section. So up to verse 11, we are stopping right here, okay? That is the earthly side of the tribulation period. But in chapter 12, what we see is that there is a heavenly battle that goes on. Satan attacks the very throne of God. And so you can find out in verse 7, And war broke out in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. And so what we need to remember is the Bible teaches us that in the book of Job and in other places, Satan still had access to God. I don't know why. I don't understand the purpose. But yet when he accused Job, if you remember, where have you been going to and fro, right? And so what we see here is, though, that God removes any access from his presence from Satan, casts him away. Most people believe that this is why the second half of the tribulation is worse than the first, but we do not know that. We don't know that for sure. But at some point between uh, the rapture of the church and this seven-year period, Satan decides not only to attack the people on the earth of God's, but to make a direct assault on God and His kingdom. And what we see there in verse 13 of chapter 12 is that when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth... He persecuted the woman, which is the church of those that are the Israel, excuse me, uh, who gave birth to the male child, talking about Jesus. But the woman had given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. This is a, uh, if you think back, that God will give us uh, strength. Uh, Isaiah 40 is it verse 31, I think it is. Like wings on an eagle. It's that God shelters, that God is going to protect his people. So Satan is thrown and this unfolds. Chapter 13, we've already looked. Uh, this is going on with the beast and the Antichrist. So I personally believe this all happens at the beginning of the tribulation period. And so Satan is working and doing all of these things because some people think it's when the rapture of the church happens that the Bible says the, the prince uh, the principalities of this world, as they're going, he views it as an opportunity to revolt. We don't know. But uh, what we see is the church leaves this world flying. Satan decides it's time to get after it. All right. And we see that he loses. We see that in chapter 13, the Antichrist, the prophet are all put into motion. And so if you read this, you think, well, is this happening chronologically? Is it happening before? That's the best way that I know to explain it. Is that God is telling us what has happened. Telling us what is going to happen and how it fits into everything. Right? Questions? Thoughts? So, do you approach Revelation different than every other book in the Bible? No, I think you approach it literally and chronologically. I think that you have to view it, uh, some of it is figurative, some of it is not. I think it's just like when you read uh, Proverbs, some of them are 
of the genre of wisdom. I think when you read some books, they are historical. And uh, so I think you have to apply the same principles, but yet you have to always be mindful that um, some of it is figurative, some of it is literal, and how does it all unfold? But then the, um, you know, with, with any of the books of the Bible, you have an original audience. That's the seven churches in, yes. in, in Asia. So, I mean, this book was not written to us, although it's written for us. It was written to those seven churches. Yeah. And so their culture and everything else had to be able to uh, understand what this meant. And I think they probably had a better understanding of what we do since it was written within their culture. Mm -hmm. So, the Great Tribulation period, seven years. At the end of that seven-year period, our next event happens, and that is Armageddon. Uh, Revelation chapter 16, starting in verse 12, and then we will see the details of that battle in chapter 19. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and the water dried up. So we just talked about that, right? That was in the bowl judgments. And so now we're seeing an explanation of what happened then. And the water was dried up so that the ways of the king from the east might be prepared. Uh, you can march across dry land a whole, a whole lot easier than if there was a water barrier, right? We saw that in the story of Moses, right? They walked across the dry land. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and see his shame. And they gathered them together in the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. Now what we see is this is an army that is influenced by Satan, by the prophet, and by the Antichrist. Chapter 19 is when we see this battle unfold in its detail, when it is specifically mentioned. But what we need to remember is that... Uh, the location is fairly accurate. We have a pretty good idea of where this battle is going to uh, happen. Uh, uh, north of Jerusalem. And uh, if you were to look through the Old Testament, you would see that there have been numerous battles fought throughout Israel's history. Now, there are some disagreements about where it's coming, but I think it is um, a very good indication. In Judges chapter 4, verse 15... Uh, Barak's victory over the Canaanites. If you were to read Judges chapter 7, Gideon's victory over the Midianites. Also, two great tragedies occurred in this battle area. The death of Saul and his sons in 1 Samuel chapter 31. And the death of King Josiah in 2 Kings chapter 23. But what you and I need to realize is that this is not figuratively this is going to be a real battle when the armies of this earth, all of them, march on Jerusalem. And if you can think about that in your little mind like I can, 
Just think about what we see on the news about China invading Taiwan, right? And the n numbers and the superiority and watch Russia invade, invade Ukraine. And, and if it wasn't for the rest of the world coming to their aid, what would have happened? And you think about this and you look at a map and Israel is just a little bitty sliver surrounded not only by the Muslim nations that hate them, but every army of the world divinely protected God's people against an entire world that is influenced by Satan himself. Now, I have never seen someone that I can tell you for sure that was demon-possessed, but I sure have met some people and seen some things where I thought it was possible. You say, that's not very bad to say, I'm just telling you the truth. But I cannot imagine how wicked things are today with the subtle with a behind-the-scene influence by evil forces, but yet specific demonic spirits that are sent out to stir up all of this trouble. And so as these armies all come to Jerusalem, we see in Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 11, what that battle looks like. Revelation, the 19th chapter, verses 11 through 20. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he sat on him who was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike, and the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And he himself treads the winepresses of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. So he says, hey, they've all been annihilated. The bodies, it's as gross and nasty as you can imagine. Right? Dead bodies, it's not figuratively. It's literally Jesus destroying His enemies. And it goes on in verse 19. And I saw the beast, the kings of earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against Him who sat on the horse and against His army. Then the beast was captured. And with Him the false prophet who worked signs in His presence. By which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, I want you to understand that this was written to give this image in your mind of a battlefield full of dead corpses. Birds feasting on their flesh. And why do you think that is? To show you that there is no one who can stand against the Lord. That while you and I might think that people win, 
when they blaspheme God, when they mock God, when they rebel against God. But there is no escaping the destructive judgment that comes to sin. And so what we see is this battle of Armageddon. The enemies of God are destroyed. And the spirit of this Antichrist that we see literally thrown into the lake of fire. His prophet is thrown into the lake of fire. We need to be reminded that when people talk about an eternity in hell, the Bible actually doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that you will spend an eternity in the lake of fire, which is the second death. And so wherever people are being tormented now, as bad as it is, as awful as the Bible says it is, there is coming a day when they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, some people believe in a thing called annihilism, that at some point God gets tired of punishing the lost and he, he lets them not exist. The Bible does not teach that. Some people believe that you can suffer for a period of time for your sins and then you can move out of that punishment. The Bible never teaches that. The Bible teaches that you are thrown into the lake of fire for all of eternity. And that is why we have been given the mission of taking the gospel to the whole world. That's why the message of the cross is so important. Because sin will be punished. God will destroy his enemies. And what we see is that the Antichrist and the beast are the first two thrown in there. But what we see is there will be billions of people who will meet that same fate. Questions? So the Lord destroys his enemies. The next item, and I'm running out of time and we're going to have years to study it, Lord willing, is the millennial reign. This is where the book of Revelation gets very difficult for some people. Uh, not for me. I believe that when the Lord said he was going to set up a kingdom for a thousand years, that's what he does. He says it five or six times, one thousand years. Uh, it can be interpreted long period of time. But I don't know why you would repeat something specifically over and over and over again if it was not what that was. And so in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, we see that I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, that is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image. And had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again till the thousand years were finished. So the lost for this thousand year period are still in hell. Alright, they've not been resurrected to be put into the lake of fire. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection talking about those who have missed death, those of us who are believers, over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now this is very tricky, and this is where 
I do not have all the answers, all right? Who will believe in the millennial kingdom? If you listen to people like David Jeremiah, they have a very, very, very clear way of speaking. They have all kinds of thoughts. But what we believe, I think, is the best approach is this. One, you will have all of the Old Testament believers will be in the millennial kingdom. All of those of us who were raptured out, who received our resurrected bodies when we were changed in the twinkling of an eye, will be in the millennial kingdom. But what about the people who got saved during the tribulation and didn't die? Well, I believe the Bible teaches us, and I'm going to give you lots of verses, and you can just eat your heart out, will be in the millennial kingdom. The Bible tells us in the book of Ezekiel that they will be given long life. That they will be given long life. And so, yeah, I'm going to look for it real quick here, and I'll give it to you in just a second. I've got like 37 verses here highlighted to share. Whew. And not enough time. Yes, alright. Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 8 through 21. Ezekiel 34, verses 17 through 24. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through and that verse from Zechariah that I wanted to share with you comes from 14 verse 17. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord God, they will have no rain. And that is important because it begins to talk about how God will deal with those who don't worship him in the millennial kingdom. And that's a whole other confusing thing. So, these are just some of the things that I, I think the Bible teaches and you can Look them up for yourself. So, six times in Revelation chapter 20, the millennial kingdom is specifically said to be 1,000 years. 1,000 years. Um, the Bible tells us when Christ returns to establish, He will establish Himself as King in Jerusalem, sitting on the throne of David in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. And I think there are three covenants that God still has to fulfill with the nation of Israel specifically. God is the one who voluntarily enters into a covenant. Alright? It's not us. He is the one that makes that offer. And He is the one that fulfills it. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, we see the Abrahamic covenant promised Israel a land. A ruler and a spiritual blessing. And so I believe this will be fulfilled in that 1,000 years. We also see um, in Deuteronomy chapter 30 a covenant that promised Israel a restoration to the land and the occupation of the land. And while they inhabit some of the land that was promised to them, today Israel's borders are much smaller than the land that God set out for them in the Old Testament. And the third is the David covenant, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that promised Israel a king from David's line who would rule forever, giving the nation rest from all their enemies. The nation rest from all their enemies. And so, once again, lots of verses. You can write them down if you want to. And so, 
At the Lord's second coming, after he has destroyed his enemies, he has bound Satan. Revelation 24, verse 31, talks about the fact that they will be regathered from the nations. In Zechariah chapter 12, it talks about the fact that the Jewish people will be converted. Listen, Jews do not go to heaven just because they're Jews. But they are loved by God. God has a special relationship with the Jewish people. But there is a time when the Jewish people will be converted and restored to the land. The Bible speaks of these events that have yet to happen in Israel's history. That they will experience a time of peace as a nation. Micah chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. Isaiah 32, verses 17. There will be joy in Israel. In Isaiah 61, verse 7. They will be comforted in Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. And so all of these things that God promised the nation of Israel still need to be fulfilled. And if God is not a liar and God does not make break His promises, you have one of two options. You either believe, like what I believe the Bible teaches, that God still has a purpose for Israel, or that all of the Old Testament promises that God has not fulfilled to the nation of Israel were transferred to the church. And while I know many of the promises are for the church, I am not one who believes that all of them have transferred to the church. I believe when God said this is a nation, that's what he meant. This is the kingdom, that's what he meant. This is the throne, that's what he meant. And so that's where the book of Revelation gets very difficult because you have people on one end of the spectrum or the other. I will say this. The reason that there has been in the early church many who deny the fact that God had a plan for Israel was that there was a hatred in the 200s, 300s, 400s toward the Jewish people. And you can see that even through some of the early Protestant Reformation. Uh, you can see that in the history of the Roman Catholic Church that the Jews were a hated people. And so I think some of that belief comes out of that. Just like if you were to be a Southern Baptist in the 1800s and uh, uh, were a, a slave owner, um, you were going to support slavery. Uh, now we look back now and understand it's not a good institution. If you were in Southern Baptist churches in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s, in the South, they were predominantly Klan members in those Southern states. Many of them were in churches every Sunday. And so their hatred for a group of people impacted their belief. Now, not all Southern Baptists were in the Klan. All right, please, that is not what I'm saying, all right? That's not what I'm saying, all right? Yes, but what I'm saying is, is that if we're not careful, our hatred for a group of people influences what we believe the Word of God teaches. And so we just have to be very, very careful. Now, that's not the only reason people believe that. Please don't think that. But... I think it is very important. What we see is here that the saints of God will help rule and reign with Christ. Now someone told me this last week. Why would we have to rule and reign with Christ um, if he's on this earth when he can do whatever he wants, when he wants, how he wants? Well, I don't know. Why did he ask him to take up some loaves of fish and bread when he could have just spoken it would have all appeared? I don't know. He did. That's just how he chooses to work. And so, when you hear people say, we're just going to be floating on the clouds, flying around on little wings, playing our little harps, we don't become angels, alright? And you're not just going to float around for all 
much hurting doing that. People are like, I'm going to get so bored. No, you're not. You're going to be working. You're going to be serving. And it's not going to be a burden because the curse of the fall and in the garden is not the issue. And so they always say, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. It's literally this. And we know the Bible says that with what we are considered faithful, that's what we will be given. So I guess if you don't want to be a toilet cleaner in heaven, be faithful here, all right? And we're going to look at the, the, the rewards when we get to that part of the book of Revelations and uh, how God looks at our faithfulness as a believer. But just a couple of things because we're out of time and I really do want to get to the last. We're just not going to get there. We'll just have to do it next week. I wanted to, but we just don't. Happen. So we will answer more questions about the millennial kingdom, who's going to be there, things like who is the army at the end of the rep at the millennial kingdom that revolts against God? Well, most scholars and what we can find out is that those who do not have resurrected bodies in the millennial kingdom, those who were alive at the coming of the Lord, destroying his enemies, still are able to procreate. So you have a generation of people that are born that make a choice to reject Jesus, even though he is on this earth. So anyway, it's a vast, big discussion. We'll hit as little of it as we can, and then uh, we'll finish up these last three introductions next week. And then the week after that, we will start in Revelation chapter 1, and we will go verse by verse through it.